Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode seven of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous, people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Bissa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Cam Redloss. Cam is an illustrator, industrial designer, writer, and disability advocate. In this episode, Cam shares her root story, navigating a progressive genetic disorder, her love of the outdoors, her advocacy work and creative projects, why representation matters, and so much more. Enjoy. I'm so grateful to be in conversation today with Cam Redlosk. Cam is a disabled industrial designer, artist, advocate, traveler, writer, and speaker. She's also a Korean American adoptee. She has been an advocate for the rare disease and disability community for 14 years, using art, writing, travels, and tools that connect us as humans. She has lived with a very rare muscle wasting condition called DNA myopathy for over 20 years. Typically, you'll find her on road trips in nature, scavenging for art destinations or concocting exploration plans. She's a daydreamer, a chaser of inspiration, and believes stories create bridges within humanity. Welcome to the podcast, Cam. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Excited to be here. In 1979, Cam was born and abandoned at birth in Daegu, South Korea. At age four, she was transported to Michigan, where she would meet her white adoptive family. Cam wrote a beautiful yet heart-wrenching blog entitled Enough. The blog was written for adoptees in commemoration of National Adoption Awareness Month, which is in November. Cam writes, I've always struggled with feeling enough. Enough for school, a job, enough for friends, enough for advocacy, enough as a human, and then some. And this feeling has only heightened as a disabled woman, because I have even more to prove, against more odds than the average, to a society who often observes disabled as pitiful, sad, low-rung, unlovable, and unable. A similar glance of pity exists when someone learns I'm an adoptee. As Cam writes her truth, she rewrites the traditional narratives that are presented in adoption circles. Oftentimes, the adoptive parents are romanticized for their good quote-unquote deed, Yet the child is relegated to a secondary character in the storyline. Cam asks, what about the child riddled, hidden, and tormenting trauma, but too young to possess a language to describe it? And so this sets the larger context for Cam's root story. For me, um, one of the questions was, what's like the moment that offered you like new insights? Or um, that's really changed my life trajectory. And honestly, that would have to be my rare muscle wasting disorder. It wasn't just a singular moment, though. It's kind of happened over 22 years, but it's a very consistent moment that keeps pushing me towards a direction, a a trajectory of life that maybe I wouldn't have done had I not had uh, this disability. Um, It it started about, uh, I'm an adoptee, as you mentioned, and um, I never met my biological family, but come to find out about years later, when I was about 25, I finally learned I had a very rare muscle-wasting genetic condition that basically leads you to complete immobility and affected maybe about a thousand people in the world. And um, 
So that was an, an, an interesting way to be connected to your biological past or meet them in essence through your genes. And it's essentially, I did this one drawing called the gift. It's basically something that they gave me without knowing it. And as well as me, because it didn't start expressing until it was my twenties. DNA myopathy, or the gift, as Cam referred to it, is a progressive genetic disorder that affects the muscles used to perform daily physical activity. And first signs of the disease appear between ages 20 to 40 in most individuals. Over the course of five years, Cam found herself misdiagnosed five different times in her 20s. However, she remembers the first signs of the disease manifesting during her adolescence. As a member of her high school's varsity soccer team, Cam found herself trying to make sense of the changes she was experiencing in her body. Her mind would think kick, but her body wouldn't respond in unison. Cam writes, I couldn't control her, my body, and it was deeply frustrating. I would blame myself. On my own, I would run and practice, but nothing would change my predicament. Never suspecting something so catastrophic would change the entire trajectory of my life. As Cam continues, she highlights the differences between having a disability that is progressive versus one that is static, the insights she has gathered from the challenges of becoming disabled, and how advocacy inserted itself in her life via storytelling in visual and written formats. Yeah, um, I think the essence of who I am is still there. It's, it's kind of who I was when I was a teenager and stuff. Um, I've always really been involved with like causes and just looking for people who needed help. But in college, um, it started, I was a soccer player for 13 years, and it really started in my senior, junior year where physical oddities were beginning to happen. And about 20, I began to start looking. And I was also going to college um, to be an industrial designer. And I was majoring in automotive design, but at the beginning I was using a cane and leg braces. And even then I thought like, okay, I love industrial design. I love design. I love beautiful you know, forms and beautiful cut lines and all the design aspects of that. But I was also kind of entering this trove of an area of where I was like, but I want something what I do to be meaningful. I don't want to just create another product, another plastic thing to be out there. Um, and so uh, one of my projects was reevaluating why wheelchairs look so horrible. And I did a, a entire studio project around that. So kind of started beginning of there, but in the 20 years that I've just really, um, in parallel to how we develop as adults from 20 to 40, a lot, we change a lot, we gain, gain new insights. But mine was also, um, in addition, all the insight I gathered from the challenges of becoming disabled, um, the challenges of a progressive condition, which is so different. You're, uh, as I mentioned in that documentary that you watched, um, it's like a moving target. You're always adjusting your body and what you can do and what you can't do to um, the changes. And so what I've done is I basically never lost sight of the things I wanted in my life. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be travel. And I still ended up doing those things, um, albeit it's more difficult and more of a struggle. And I found that when I came to California about um, 15 years ago, that's when I first met my two uh, first two patients that have the same condition as I. And years ago, I was told that would never happen because it was so rare. You know, I would never meet another patient like me. Um, and so in meeting them, advocacy kind of just started happening on ac accident. But again, it was never a one moment decision. I'm going to be an advocate and talk about all this. It's just my natural personality that come forward that saying, well, if I can share my story, then I should. And then it's just kind of catapulted where advocacy really just inserted itself in my life, whether I wanted it to or not. And I've just explored all sorts of avenues because of it. I didn't 
lose myself or my my creativity design self I gained more because I was able to branch out and write and become a self-taught illustrator and all of it centered around the idea of um, trying to help others in storytelling. Storytelling is critical to Cam's advocacy work. Cam was the first blogger to share her experience as someone living with GME myopathy. The act of writing and sharing her story so openly was and continues to be groundbreaking. In explaining her decision to share her story, she writes, I felt that since the disease is so rare, it was up to patients to share the stories. And at the time, patients weren't really publicly sharing. Many were closeted. In many cultures, it is considered shameful to have a genetic disease because of the concern of purity in the family bloodline. So I really wanted to encourage being open and sharing, so I began writing about it. Cam goes on to share more about building community and acknowledging one another's humanity through story. Um, I was the first blogger with my condition that started sharing about it, and most people were very hidden about it. So it began with the G&E um, community where I was trying to give them permission that it's okay to share, not just permission, but also like, look, I'm also going through it and this is how I'm doing it. Um, don't feel alone. And so it's grown into a bigger thing, obviously through my Instagram. And, and while I might not, uh, I have many uh, people who will message me individually and I'll have discussions and, and, and talk with them uh, if they have a disability or whatever it is they, they feel like they feel open to share because of something they read from me. Um, I think mostly though, and rather than an engaged conversation, um, which is why I try to do podcasts and other things, what I do on my uh, Instagram, for example, is I'm just sharing how I feel, experience, or see things. And even without a conversation with one of my followers, they already um, feel community or maybe even approach their own traumas or feel like they can because they just saw someone else do it. And they don't even have to have a disability or disease. It could be something like they lost their parent or they're going through career difficulties or they're going through depression. It could be so many things. And just seeing other people not saying like, my life isn't perfect and this is where I struggle is really healing for a lot of people because I think we all walk around or roll around thinking that we're all, everyone else is fine and doing life perfectly. And that's just not the case. And um, with me, I don't really see myself as a mentor. I just see myself as a sharer. Like I also dislike the word motivational speaker. I'm not like here to motivate you. I'm here to share and say, we have a collective humanity and don't worry, you're not the only one. So it's okay to really confront what you're going through. And in order to heal, you have to really like, you know, have that conversation with yourself and with others who are also going with it. Although Cam is constantly negotiating loss, she has not allowed her prognosis to limit her. Through it all, she has never lost sight of herself and the many other gifts that she has to share with the world. Instead, she finds a sense of empowerment and creativity as she learns to adapt to the changes in her body. As we transition the conversation to her experience of the outdoors, I ask her, how did your adoptive family shape your experience of the outdoors? And how has GNE myopathy brought you to a different experience and understanding of the outdoors? Mm. Um, I think I've always loved nature, but it was never really cultivated by my family. Um, oddly, in fact, most of my interests and um, have little remnants of influence in my family, to be honest, like basic character traits, but, you know, being giving and stuff like that can come. But interest, um, I think I've just always had a strong sense of self and 
for me, it was about breaking out of the bubble of my community and, and just growing and expanding. And so when I came into California, um, I was primed for a relationship with nature. It just happened. I just started like, um, I knew what was going to happen. I knew what the prognosis was. And I just decided that I was going to live my life. That was definitely a very uh, concrete decision I think I had made with myself early on. And so I started road trips and that's how I really began discovering uh, nature. And I think what my disease, my disability really allowed me to really experience it in ways that I think a lot of people might not see nature is um, immobility. The more you lose, the more you're less able to be mobile, the more you um, seek solace or put strengths on your mental aspects, or you're able to observe, everything is slow motion. So I really observed nature. And then that just really began my uh, introspective relationship with it and how similar it is to us and, and everything is origin from nature. So I just thought that was really beautiful. And so that just kind of began it. Cam wrote a blog for REI's Limitless Sides to Outside campaign. She wrote, my disability has never stopped me from having a relationship with nature, but inaccessibility has. With all the amazing spiritual, philosophical, and therapeutic healing aspects of nature, isn't it a shame to not have access nor be included because you're disabled or because of your zip code? When traveling by airplane, Cam, like most in the disabled community, face huge challenges. Since 2018, Congress has asked the Transportation Security Administration to serve the disability community in an equitable manner. In this effort, the TSA was asked to gather data regarding how long it takes disabled passengers to get through security, how many wheelchairs are damaged or lost in transit, post signs informing disabled passengers of their rights, and to provide training for TSA employees. Yet, the TSA has not complied. NPR recently reported that for people with disabilities, airline travel is regulated by the outdated Air Carrier Access Act, which was signed into law in 1986 during the Reagan administration. Other forms of transit, such as busing, are covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990. As Cam continues, she shares the challenges of traveling to Machu Picchu, Peru, at a time when it was marketed as welcoming and accessible to full-time wheelchair users and then goes on to describe her experience at national parks. Um, so with Peru, Peru is interesting. Uh, Machu Picchu is somewhere I've always wanted to go to when I was a teen in high school. I had heard about it and I just thought, well, that's just a place I'm gonna go to one day. Um, but as I became in a wheelchair and, and started doing more international travel, I just thought, well, that's never gonna happen. And then I read an article that saying it was accessible. And so I didn't really know what to expect. Um, we, I usually don't book tour groups because I like the freedom of not being in a tour. But for this one, because I knew it was a little bit more physically arduous, um, just the day of Machu Picchu, I booked a tour with a company that is actually founded by a paraplegic, oddly. And so I thought, well, there for sure, that's going to be accessible. He's going to, you know, his group is going to know everything. Well, when we got there, we found out it, what they do is they outsource. They don't have people in Peru. They outsource to other travel companies. And when I found the difficulty was, I don't think these people had ever really dealt with the disabled, the two tours that we had, the two tour people we had. And so it was basically the whole day was uh, completely inaccessible. They never told me about um, the train system and how there was no way you would ever, there was a ramp to wheel up. Uh, basically what they did is each person grabbed me by a limb, like I was a pig on a stick and they tried to 
bring me in into the train while it was leaving because we were trying to figure out how to get on, but the plane, the trains have to leave on time. So they're carrying me like a bag on the stick onto this train, like it's acceptable. And I just said, of a shoulder limb weak, uh, weakness and pain. So it was just incredibly painful. And I'm like crying. And I said, the train is leaving. Get me back in the chair. Get me back in the chair. So we sat there and I'm just thinking, it's not going to happen. And I can't believe this. I booked with a wheelchair uh, accessible group that should know better. And so what I did was um, adapted and created an idea for uh, the people, the the people at the train who were trying to help me get on and we were able to get me on the next train that came. Then we get to um, Aguas Calientes, which is the right at the mouth of Machu Picchu and um, the buses, same thing. No one ever told me you're going to have to be carried and it's going to be painful to get on the bus. Um, so then when we get onto Machu Picchu, we find out um, the uh, aisle way towards the main entrance is so narrow, there's no way a wheelchair can go through it. So we're thinking about well, how's that going to happen? And the one tour guide went over to the other side and just happens to be, oddly, there was a little girl in a wheelchair there sitting on the other side of the main entrance overlooking Machu Picchu. I come to find out she asked them if they could get out of the chair because it's a smaller chair so they could bring me in it. When I found that, I said, no way, you never ask someone they were so sweet. They said, sure, the mother did. And I said, no, we're not taking her chair. So what we figured out was the wheels on my wheelchair were movable and they were able to carry me. Long story short, it was just insane. It was incredibly dangerous. I didn't feel like they knew what they were doing or um, necessarily equipped to handle a range of disabilities. Um, so that's kind of like the general story for every place that we go to, it's in, uh, whether we're doing with the airlines, which is a whole story in itself it's incredibly um every single time we fly it's it's always difficult flying road trips are uh they have come with their own difficulties right now i'm having more difficulty sitting um just because as i lose more muscle structure um just more pain arrives um but road trips are generally can be easier um the main big national parks they do have accessibility like yosemite and um grand canyon which i was recently went to uh, you know, somebody has this beautiful, I can't even think of the point, but this beautiful um, rock or concrete path up until this one point. And it just shows that it didn't obstruct. You're going to making it accessible anyways for non-disabled, for um, many tourists to come. You might as well add something like that that doesn't really obfuscate the beauty of nature. But in other areas, like, go, like for example, um, Grand Canyon, there's basically the main... Uh, path along the rim that's accessible. But what I would love national parks, parks to do is add more accessible trails. There's never an accessible trail. And so when I go out in nature, mostly uh, when we started doing it like 15 years ago, I didn't have any role models. I just started going out and basically we would just improvise. We would just see what we could see, but there's always like, you wonder like, oh, like when they just put like a wood um, little path across this ravine, because they do all the time for non-disabled and things like that. In a recent Parks Project documentary short featuring Cam's story, she shares her love of desert landscapes. Throughout her life, she has found many parallels between these thriving, desolate landscapes and the feelings of isolation she has experienced through being an adoptee, as well as living with GNE myopathy. Cam continues to expand on this perspective. 
Yeah, we actually talked about um, that was like a two and a half interview and we brought it, uh, um, Tommy brought it down to 12 minutes, talked a lot about the desert, actually. Um, the desert really starts with childhood dreams I had, um, sequential and consistent dreams. Um, many times there were war-torn desert areas and many times I was a little adopted girl in those areas. So when I came to California and saw my very first desert in person, I was just like, well, there's such a connection with that. I've seen this you know, in my dreams my whole life. And there is an element of feeling um, lonely or isolated out in the desert because there's not much there. And so it really translates to feelings that we may have in our own life. Uh, it's in periods of loneliness or isolation or uh, being lost or confusion, not knowing what's going on. And so that was one of the first connections with the desert. Then I started exploring the desert. And what I love so much about it is, uh, I recently talked about it in one of my posts on Instagram, is the desert is about what's not apparent to the eye. You really have to look. There's this great quote I love by the, um, the author of uh, The Prince, um, where it says, um, what's beautiful about the desert is somewhere it hides a well. And that you can really translate to your life. Like sometimes we have these deserted landscapes in our lives, our minds, and and it's about looking for the well. There is things there, and all of the um, you know feeling of desertingness, deserted um, landscapes. There, if you just keep searching, there's something there, and I think that translates to life too. And the other aspect is uh, most people see the desert and they just think, oh, that's awful. Why would anyone want to go there? But I've just met so many kindred spirits, so many artists, so many amazing stories of artists who spent decided to stay in a desert for decades and build something creatively. And that's just amazing. So that's, that's just some of the reasons why I love it. Oh, also because sun is great for your body when you're having pain. And uh, so anyone who's ever feel, it's just great in general, even if you're not having pain, it's just good for you mentally. Storytelling is at the core of Cam's healing nature. Whether she's illustrating, designing, writing an Instagram post, or blogging, Cam is always sharing stories to uplift others and to connect through our shared humanity. As we shift the conversation, I ask her, how has storytelling helped in your healing process? Yes, um, many thoughts in that aspect. For one, for sure, I think this whole sharing business um, is twofolded. It's good for other people, and it's mostly good for yourself. Um, I found writing Basically, writing things out for one area really brings ideas to you that you didn't know, that you might not think of. Um, so I think in general, even if you don't publicly share, writing is great. It's a great way for you to figure out things and put thoughts on a paper. When I was writing and I became, be, became the first blogger with my condition to come out, um, I guess I had the advantage of being more westernized. And for me, I just don't see things like this as taboo. So it was never about a taboo. However, you are sharing something very personal and that can be very draining for me um, sometimes, uh, even though as much as I want to share and stuff, sometimes it's difficult because, you know, regardless of what acceptance level I'm at, it's still a difficult thing that's happening sometimes. And I can still get, go through the whole process of, you know, like anyone else where I'll feel sad over it or lost or things like that. But um, what I found was when I began writing, I thought, well, some people don't respond to reading or they don't really read. Maybe I should draw some of my moments. So I began, uh, became a self-taught illustrator and began illustrating where all of my illustrations are built around uh, moments of my condition. Um, most of them probably more emotional aspects of 
how I feel about the condition and some about being an adoptee. And that as well, drawing very similar to how writing out can unearth ideas or things you didn't know about yourself or where you're at in the process of acceptance or journey or healing um, that you didn't know. So when I was drawing, there was like things that would come out. I would have an image in my head and I would try to start drawing it. And through that, you know, a lot of times I'll be crying during my drawing while I'm drawing because it's really telling me something as well. And then what I love what um, illustrations do is, yes, I'm telling other people, this is my art and this is what it's about, where, where it comes from. But most everyone always interprets it to their own situation that they're going through in life, which is really, which is what I love and what I think art is really about. It's not about me, it's about like, how do you take, how do you take it from it? So I think the process of sharing has greatly helped um, in terms of healing. Um, when you say things out loud, they're less shameful or hidden, or there's nothing to be ashamed about. Most of us in our lives, there's nothing to be ashamed about. We've just felt like we can't talk about these things. And I think not talking about a lot of things um, only does more damage in our process and journey of healing and coming to acceptance. The act of sharing our stories requires vulnerability and oftentimes a letting go of shame. Much of Cam's advocacy work has centered on sharing her story and creating space for others in the GNEM community to share their stories. Given that GNE myopathy is a genetic disorder, I asked Cam how she approaches those patients who don't want to share their stories due to perhaps the cultural norms that may restrict and or make it unacceptable for patients to share this part of their lives. Yeah, and I understand um, for my condition, the most commonly affected is Jewish Persian. And there can be a little ethnicity there in terms of all the pride is in the bloodline. And a lot of our shame, our taboos is built on cultural. So I don't judge, uh, at the time I wasn't judging other patients, Persian patients who wouldn't come out. What I did was say, I can share, and hopefully one day they won't feel the weight of the culture of shame that's been unfairly placed on them, whether it's culturally within their specific uh, community or even on a wider scale, you know, internationally what culturally we view disability as a bad thing. You know, so we've placed those things on ourselves because we've been told that. So I totally have empathy for those who can't come out. I just want them to know that there's nothing to be ashamed of. Cam is in the process of writing her first children's book. The storyline was inspired by a moment of loss. At the time, Cam was wearing a leg brace and cane to walk. One day she fell and knew this was her body's way of signaling the inevitable transition to a wheelchair. The children's book entitled Monster and Me is inspired by this moment. In the story, Gianni Myopathy is the monster that never leaves Cam's side. And so I asked Cam to read from the blog that introduces the storyline. And I asked her, how have you learned to make peace with and or befriend the monster? And how do you even begin to heal, at least emotionally and spiritually, a monster that constantly reminds you of unwanted, uninvited loss. I need to get it done. I know I've, I've been in a weird place with it. I was on a good trajectory and then I got some feedback questioning the storyline. A lot of the art was done. So, um, and then I was dealing with my dad's funeral and everything. And so I need to, and then, and then the walk, my condo and everything, but I want to finish it this year because it, it's just the time everyone is like, after disability right now. So um, 
yeah, I just need to decide what am I gonna, I'm gonna keep the storyline or change it. But anyways, I'll read that. I'm currently working on my first children's book. Inspired by a drawing I did in 2012, I imagined the scene after I fell. At the time I was using a cane and leg braces to get around. As I laid there post-fall, I personified that moment and my disease became a forlorn monster, an unwitting soul as the origin of all my falls and struggles. The monster is a G&E myopathy that follows me. It's a part of me, a part I don't want nor invited nor created, but a part of me nonetheless. How do you deal with something that keeps following you uninvited? You make friends with it. My monster lurks and hides, but I sense them. Like an innocent child, he has real feelings, purpose, and an attachment to me. My apathy for him saddens him. He grieves and ponders my constant, constant desire to escape him. He knows not what he does, only that he has to be with me. After all, this is what he was designed for. He is a constant reminder of my past, present, and future. It's a part I have no control over, a part that is both good and bad, creating shaded gray areas of emotions. I can't be completely angry over something that has brought about such perspective and imagination, but perspective can be painful nevertheless. So here we are. So here we are. We have a relationship. It's a story about a journey between struggle and acceptance. Somehow our lives intertwined and we must find acceptance and love if we are to make it through. Um, one of the aspects, even though I'm very creative, I'm also very practical and logical. So there's an aspect where I say, well, there's nothing I can do to change it. It is what it is. It's going to be there. Paralleled with the fact that it's very important for me to live my life and not be tell myself that I can't do things because of my disability. And it's also the acknowledgement that, you know, I see life as a tree branches, like a million different ways we could have ended up uh, based on decisions we made or didn't made. Um, life could have ended up a million different ways. And it's natural to wish something isn't happening um, that you don't exactly desire. But I think it's also advantageous to stop and like redefine what's good and bad and use the opportunity to see what's good about the experience too, and not just the bad and appreciate that, those aspects. So in that little thing I read about with the monster me, I say like, um, it's just not all bad. There's just so much good that's come from it too. And so I'm constantly reconciling the, the two. It doesn't mean I'm like perfect acceptance 100%. And that I don't struggle, I struggle all the time. But I think in understanding that basic idea that, well, this is what happened. And with everything, everything isn't a monolith. Uh, it's more nuanced. It's not a singular experience. And so for me, I'm able to all also extract out the good points and appreciate where it's taken me. I've done things that I just never expected to do in my life. So I think that gratitude, appreciation, and then introspection really helps. Again, I'm not saying that it's, you know, I cry, I have difficult times all the time, but in general, just being able to, it's important for me to live my life and have somewhat of a healthy relationship with life. And so I found that just comes, it has to come from within. Aside from Monster and Me, Cam has many other creative projects in the works. One of them is Chair Devils, which she co-created with her husband, Jason, who is a concept illustrator in video games. Through Chair Devils, Cam and Jason are breaking the myths of disability. Cam writes, we believe a contributing factor of ignorance about disability is a lack of representation in media and pop culture, which is why as an artist on wheels, I started Chair Devils. We need more movies, animations, toys, cartoons, and books showing disability for children to adults. 
Cam continues by telling us how she and Jason hope to develop this project. Yeah, so um, while I don't shy, shy away from sharing the personal aspects of going through a progressive disease, which sometimes may seem sad, but I think they're just multifaceted. Um, I was thinking, well, I'd like to do something else too that seems more positive. Not that sharing how I feel isn't positive, but um, more represents the community, the disabled community I've come to know who are very talented, diverse, um, involved in many things, living their life, et cetera. And so my husband and I were just, uh, he's also uh, an artist. He's a concept illustrator in video games. And we just started drawing these little characters. And one of the things for me is, yes, I'm talking about my disease and aspects of it, but representation is, is another section that's so important. And it seems so simple. People might think, oh, they're complaining. It's not, they're not this person on TV or this person in magazines that. But when you realize our biases are developed based on subconscious of what we see every day, everything we're taking in, we're taking in millions of pieces of information every day. And that um, without our uh, awareness, because our brain is so amazing, it's putting all that information together informing our perspective on the world. So if you only saw one gender or one race for a very long time, or if you never saw disability on TV, and it's only ever when it's a sad story about a disabled person or becoming disabled, that is your general perception of disability. So I can't necessarily um, fault to the general public. I can say things need to change, but they have been conditioned by what we see and what we don't see to the myths of disability. And so representation is so important because the more they see disabled stories and disabled people in these stories who are happy and living their life, the more they say, oh, they're just like me. And that's how most of us operate. So with Cherodobos, they're just like fun, chibi-inspired illustrations. Um, chibi is uh, Japanese. And there are these caricatures of it could be like a, a surfer or a traveler or a van lifer or, um, you know, plays um, uh, rugby or whatever, because a lot of disabled do all these things. People just don't know it because you've never seen it. And so we just started drawing these about a couple of years ago and we did Instagram a year ago. We started an Instagram page. What I would really love as soon as I get done with my children's book is we do want to develop it and pitch it. Um, we originally wanted it as an urban vinyl toy, not just for children, but for like everyone, you know, not just like reduce it to just kids, but for everyone. And then as we were going with thinking like, uh, it would be great if we could pitch it to TV show cartoon or whatever. So kids can start seeing it because kids don't see it. And I think kids catching kids when they're young before they've been tainted by the world, telling them and not letting them see disability all the time, that will change the next generation. All of Cam's work is created with a higher purpose in mind. As a writer, illustrator, designer, and advocate, she invites us to build bridges of understanding through our shared humanity. As we come to a close, I ask Cam, like I do of all guests, how do you experience the sacred and find ancestral guidance in your day-to-day -day life? Cam reminds me of a privilege that most of us take for granted, the privilege of family. In essence, family privilege is oftentimes afforded to those who were born and raised in their biological family units. This privilege gives an individual the benefits of belonging to a family system that is held as superior to all others. As an adoptee, Cam shares that speaking of ancestry takes on a different dimension. And so we start to ponder the different ways that we can think of ancestry. 
I'm not sure it's day-to-day life. Oh, day-to-day life, I think um, one of the sacred, uh, appreciating like, or experiencing the sacred is appreciation and gratitude, first of all. But ancestral guidance, like I don't know my biological family. I have my adoptive family and, and they are ancestral uh, just by experience. But I think it's, um, I feel like it's just being aware that there was a past and people before you and how you got here and knowing your family roots and what they did and how you want to improve upon or also repeat the good aspects of it. Um, I think all that is kind of in our subconscious in general. We always want to improve. I always hear parents, they want to improve at least based on their parents. So they want to do at least a little bit of a better job than uh, what they may have with their children. So I think it's just always being aware that we want to take what was, what did happen and then build upon it you know, so the next generation can build upon what we did as well. Yeah, I was, yesterday I was watching, I only got to watch about half of this uh, panel on, have you watched the documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma? No, but I, I will now though. Yes, it's so good. Oh my gosh, it's broadcasting now. So you need to get on it. Okay. Um, I'll send you the link, but there's every day, and I think it might be seven days or so, but every day there's a bunch of panels that go along with the documentary. And yesterday there was one on climate change as trauma. I was just thinking when you were talking about this idea of ancestors, um, one of the speakers yesterday was talking about mother earth as our oldest ancestor. And I was thinking about the desert as your ancestor in, in many ways, because I think that we don't think about land in that way sometimes, right? Because we always think about ancestors in terms of like actual people and flesh and blood that came before us, right? Or that, yeah, that we knew of. And so I think that there's a way in which those who maybe didn't have traditional upbringings, we can, if we switch our mindset, right? Start to think about the land as, as our ancestors, I think there's a reason that certain landscapes speak to us in special ways, right? I really like that um, perspective of viewing that because if we viewed them as a living uh, land and our planet as a living ancestor, maybe we would take care of it more. And that's what I mean by seeing what, understanding what history is and what the mistakes of beforehand which we don't ever seem to do. We seem to commit the same atrocities, the same mistakes, um, but really being mindful of that past and the present and how that current ancestral, in this case, land is going to change in the future. If you really have gratitude for those things and consider them sacred, then you would want to change that aspect. And I find a lot of people don't, you know, they don't have any appreciation for land and water. And that's one thing with indigenous is they got it right. You can't live without, water you know this bit where oil 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 it's like there's no will to try we can do anything if there's will there's no will to get away from the things that are destroying our resources yeah and i think that that idea of you're right in indigenous practices this idea of kinship right that interconnectedness between us all and i think that that's so central even in your bio is this idea that all of these stories, your story, my story, we all are interconnected in very sacred ways, I think. The fact that we don't stop to really think and acknowledge our humanity is just, is heartbreaking. I think that's what's mind-boggling or what makes me so passionate about humanity or just things in general is seeing on a grand vista how connected we are. How could you not want to be 
kinder or the things that you output mean something because um yeah i just it it your that's you that you're assaulting or whatever it is you know being unkind to or or you know inconsistent whatever it is we're all connected so this yeah i just don't I, i think a lot of people don't really get that After delving into the fun five, Cam leaves us with some final words regarding the disabled community and how to center healing in our lives. What are your favorite three things in nature and what does it tell us about you? Um, I would say the stillness and quiet or the quietness um, and then trees and mountains because I think they're the window into time and it's um, beginnings and antiquities and um, and I would say those things say probably that I'm contemplative or self-reflective. And I like being in the quiet. I'm already kind of, anyways, just from less mobility, there's a quietness, even if I'm in a crowded room, there's still like a quietness around me, even if I'm loud, of just constant observation. Mm, I love that. How would you like to spend your elder years? Uh, if I got to choose, I would hope that same as today as an explorer, you know, both mentally and physically, um, that would be, that would be the greatest thing that could happen if I was old and still doing that. You could give all human beings one virtue, which would you choose? Uh, it's a hard one. I mean, it, I would say empathy or understanding, but I do think a lot of people do have empathy and doesn't necessarily mean that. So you I might have say perspective as, as well, allows you to see beyond your own experience. And that's what I think we need more of. Agreed. What space and place most dramatically influenced your life? I'd say space, um, I would say creativity. And place, I would say uh, California. I changed so much from moving from Michigan to California. I think um, it was always who, I, always who I was, but California allowed it to really come out and really allow me to be myself. And where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you in advancing the work that you're doing for rare diseases, disability and inclusion? Uh, my main website is Cam Redlosk, R-E-D-L-A-W-S-K.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook under the same exact name, Cam Redlosk. And then uh, Chair Devils is Chair Devils, just look up on Instagram.com slash Chair Devils. Awesome. And we'll add those to the show notes as well. And what do you want able-bodied people to know about disability? Uh, I would want them to know that for one, disability isn't a bad word. Um, You don't have to feel bad for us or pity us or necessarily think that we're suffering. Uh, We're just like any other non-disabled person who has a multifaceted experience of emotions. Um, And that disability is not a monolith. We're just like you who have interests, desires, um, talents and intelligence. And um, I think we self, quote unquote, suffer more from ignorance and inaccessibility um, in, ev- in every aspect of society, whether it's career or physical or re- representation, education. Uh, those are the biggest barriers. And what parting words would you like to share with our listeners to support them in learning, unlearning, and or relearning how to center healing in their lives? I would say um, to start, the most important thing is to be honest with yourself, um, building up illusions designed 
to prevent us from really targeting or uh, confronting true introspection and self-reflection um, isn't really conducive for a healing process, um, whether it's publicly or with yourself. And um, not doing so, it just, yeah, it just, it just doesn't allow you to grow as much in life. So I would just say just, it really starts with yourself and you really have to be honest with yourself because no one else is in that conversation. Only you can say, so it's okay if you admit to yourself about things about yourself, but things of where you're at, no one else is going to see that and judge it. So that's okay to do that. Thank you so much, Cam. It's been such a pleasure. And I know that you live by Mark Twain's philosophy of write what you know. So I just want to thank you for actually always being honest with you know yourself. And I think you just, your, your work is just amazing. And I think that that's what I love about it. It's so raw and just so authentically you. So thank you so much for always for writing, for telling, for drawing, for advocating in the way that only you know how. So thank you so much, Cam. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Cam's healing nature lies in her ability to speak and connect with various communities simultaneously. As I listened to her interview, I kept going back to the Parks Project documentary, where she leaves poignant messages for both the disability community and able-bodied individuals. To those with disabilities, Cam states, even if you don't feel accepted, find ways to get out in nature. You don't have to be accepted to do something. And that is how things change. The more they see us, the more they'll think of us. And to able-bodied individuals, Cam asks us to acknowledge the shared humanity, the shared passions, the shared interests. Think about your sphere of influence. How might you be practicing ableism? What are you doing to better understand the importance of accessibility? And lastly, Cam invites us collectively to tap into our imagination. From Cam's perspective, imagination is empathy and creative motion. Empathy, she believes, provokes change that leads us to changing minds, changing laws, changing accessibility. Ultimately, this requires a collective liberation that acknowledges the interconnectedness of our struggles, the prejudice that excludes us from social and economic opportunities. Or as Nelson Mandela once wrote, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. In the show notes, you will find Cam's social media handles, blogs she has written, her documentary film short, and resources to learn more about DNA myopathy and ableism. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore yourhealingnature or email me at info at yourhealingnature.com. And lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there is a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors and or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in the sunshine. Oh, no.